This is the Alpha Universe Podcast. I'm Christopher Robinson, editor of alphauniverse.com. And in today's show, I'm speaking with renowned New York street photographer, Vivian Goussois. We discuss the unlikely path she took to becoming a photographer, her love of shooting in extreme conditions, and her once in a lifetime expedition to the Arctic, where she was limited to just a Sony a7R II and 24-70 G Master lens. Vivian and I also talk about the ins and outs of social media for photographers, and how her career has flourished through social media. In Tech Talk, Sony's Mark Weir describes the lesser-known advantages of Sony mirrorless camera and lens design. Then we get a do-this-now tip from Vivian Goussois to help beginning photographers jumpstart their craft. Growing up in Flushing, Queens, Vivian Goussois has been on her own since she was just 18. After working a series of dead-end jobs, she took out loans to go back to school. To relieve stress and clear her head, Vivian would leave her small apartment and walk around the city. When she got back, she would tell her roommate about everything she had seen, from the light on the buildings, to the way the shadows of trees grew across the ground, and the way the glow of the sunset transformed the city. After one too many of these recaps, Vivian's roommate suggested that maybe she should just get a camera. So she did. And that was the beginning. I just went on Amazon. I purchased a camera for the cheapest amount I could find. It arrived. It was broken. Um, the white balance setting was completely messed up. But I didn't want to return it. I just wanted to take the photos. And that's essentially how I got started. And that led me to um, take that camera with me on those walks. And then I accumulated a bunch of photos and that was the beginning. You know, a lot of photographers, I think, believe that when they, by buying a camera, they will become a photographer. Just hearing you talk, you were already a photographer. You just didn't have the camera yet. You know, the way you're described walking through and seeing the scene and describing the the colors and everything that you saw, you, you were actually making these pictures in your mind you just didn't have that camera quite yet. So the camera was the was that last piece of the puzzle, not the first piece that it is for so many people. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always written from when I was little. Like, I'd write out little prose and stories, but that always felt really incomplete to me. And I guess I didn't realize until I started taking photos that that was the other piece of the puzzle. So it felt sort of like I found that other puzzle piece and I could finally have something that could tell the stories that I wanted to tell. So photography really started by being an exercise that would help clear your mind. And it became something, you know, more that you're, well, now you're doing it to make a living. Yeah, yeah. How did you bridge that gap? When did, when did you start to really make a living with your photography? In terms of making a living, how I would define it would be, can I pay my rent? Can I pay my bills? Can I survive? in New York City. I live in Manhattan. <laughs> it's no small feat. So I would say I wasn't fully able to do that until about two and a half years ago. And that kind of happened. It was a snowball effect. I had gotten a lot of people following me on social media, and that led to a lot of exposure. And that exposure led to people finding my work online, and then they would request um, my work for commissions. So I would get asked to do book covers, album covers, all kinds of different things. And that sort of became a thing that gradually led up to something of a living. And then I started kind of segueing into doing travel. 
And I would say that when I started doing travel and kind of putting that together with all the commissions I was doing here, that's when I was finally able to make it a real living and a real full-time job. You've done a lot of different kinds of travel photography, and recently I know you had an opportunity to go to the Arctic. How did that trip come about? So the astronaut Commander Hadfield, he's a Canadian astronaut. A lot of people in the United States know him as the astronaut who played the David Bowie cover of Space Oddity in the Space Station on YouTube. But he made a post on his Facebook asking if people knew of any filmmakers, photographers, artists, scientists, writers who would want to go to the Arctic with him on a Soviet-era icebreaker. And I saw the post, and it had something like 500 comments on it already because he has this amazing online presence. And I thought to myself, okay, there's literally no way that I have a chance of getting in on this trip, but I'm just going to make a comment. And so I made a comment, and I said, the top three places I've always wanted to go in my life have been Siberia, the Arctic or the Antarctic. This is everything I want to do. I love photographing snow and extreme conditions. This is my work. And I I think I had an event I had to go to and I didn't have access to the internet that night. So I had no idea what was happening. I literally thought I just made the comment and it would disappear into a void. And I got home around midnight and I had a message on Facebook and it was from his son, Evan Hadfield. And he said, hey, when you get this, can you give me a call? And I was like, what? So I called him up and he had expressed that he already looked through my work, but he wanted to hear my sort of backstory. And I asked him if he had time and he said, yeah, I've got time. I was like, okay, great. And I told him the entire backstory of sort of, you know, my life so far. And he said, well, you're the last person we chose to go on this trip. And I pretty much lost it. <laughs> wow. um, and so, yeah, that, that was how that came about. You mentioned extreme conditions, and I first became aware of your work, just your photography in snowstorms and blizzards in New York City. What is it that draws you to these extreme conditions? I'm very much drawn to trying to tell the story of what it's like to live in a city that's so full of so many people, but at the same time, you can feel completely isolated. And I think for me, snow, especially in the setting of New York City, everything looks extremely magical and it's a very nostalgic time and this sort of time when people forget how old they are and they sort of revert back to, you know, having those eyes of wonder um, from when they were kids, right? But at the same time, when you go out in the snow, it's sort of this great allegorical representation of what it's like to be alone in the city, because usually the streets are very empty. Again, um, the sound of what it's like in a snowstorm is something I've always been drawn to. So that kind of muffled sound where like the city goes silent and there's very few people walking, to be able to capture that and sort of tell the story of how that relates to nostalgia and the isolation of urban living is sort of how things have evolved with my going out in every snowstorm and photographing it in terms of the story that I'm trying to tell with it. There's something really magical about walking around a city when it's really just being hammered by a snowstorm and it's quiet and it 
you know, all the lights are still on, like there should be a ton of traffic in the streets, but there's nobody there. And all the sidewalks are getting filled up and there's lights on in the buildings. And it just has a, a quality that you only see that one in that one instance. You talk about wanting to go to Siberia and the Arctic, which isn't doesn't have that same kind of urban setting. Obviously, a lot of snow and a lot of cold and wind. But how does that sort of those extreme conditions in a landscape versus extreme conditions in a city? What draws you to that? Um, when you think of places like the Arctic or Siberia, you think of things like permafrost, and you know, okay, these are places that don't change, and they're barren and they're desolate. But the truth is that these landscapes are vastly changing. They're not barren, they're not desolate, they're full of life, it's just different life. And they change at a very rapid rate. And it's kind of like living in New York, you know, New York City, things change at a rapid rate as well. And so I think it was kind of this really interesting bittersweet correlation between being out really removed from everything in nature. You know, at one point we were in an area of the world and we did the calculations and at that time there were maybe only 300 people in that area of the world, including our group. And to really see a correlation between being somewhere like that and New York City, which is a city teeming with people, right, I think was very fascinating for me. We were talking earlier about the gear that you brought on the trip, and you brought just one camera and one lens? Yeah, so I actually, for, to photograph all the still photography, I had one camera, one lens. I had the RX 104 was my backup video. So I actually didn't really take stills with the RX 104. I had it as like my backup pocket camera if I needed it. But I, for all the hikes that we did, all the helicopter, we were in helicopters every day. Um, I would only take the A7R2 and the G Master lens. I think for a lot of photographers, if they had an opportunity to go on a trip like this, they'd be packing yeah. everything in their, you know, in their closet. They would leave underwear at home in order to bring an extra filter or something. Yeah. How, how can you, how did you decide just to do it with the one camera and one lens? So we had a very extreme weight restriction. Um, originally, we were told we could only bring 40 pounds, including clothing, to wow. the Arctic. <laughs> so just... Let that sink in for a second. And that includes, you know, your laptop, which my laptop weighs a ton, hard drives, all those things that you need, obviously, in addition to camera gear. So I already knew that I was going to have severe limitations. And so I was like, you know, what, what is the one camera body I could bring that would fulfill a lot of different things that I need? Like I needed something that could reliably shoot great video, but also shoot high resolution because I knew that the images were gonna be displayed in an art gallery setting in November. So I knew I needed something that did all of those things. And the A7R2 was the obvious choice for that. And the lens obviously was a great choice because it's ultra sharp, really great. I did bring one, um, like a fader filter. Initially, I had started using that for video a while back, but I use it for still photography as well, and it came in handy in the Arctic because you're able to actually, you know, cut down on all that really, really stark light, especially since we were there during midnight sun, so there was never really a reprieve from being in light. It was a good setup. Do you usually like to have more gear with you if possible? Like in a snowstorm in New York, 
would you like to walk out of your apartment with a, a bag full of gear or do you know so you're <laughs> Actually, kind of minimalist all the time yeah especially in a snowstorm i don't have the luxury of being able to change lenses you know because i'm in blowing snow i'm not ducking into places as sort of like a, a reprieve only because i'm trying to avoid condensation issues so I really only ever bring one lens, one body. I'll bring multiple batteries, but I usually try. And I think it comes from my video game background, that whole like challenge aspect, like let's see how far I can get on one battery. And I've, I've actually had a pretty good time of it, you know, going through a whole snowstorm. I typically walk anywhere from seven to eight miles in a snowstorm taking photos. So yeah, I'm, I'm very minimal when it comes to what I have because I don't really have that luxury of having a ton of stuff um, because the conditions are so wild. Does that affect how you take pictures or is it vice versa? Do you tend to see in a particular focal length or a particular focal range and so having a lot of lenses outside of that range would just be irrelevant? Or do you like to have one focal range with you so that it really focuses your vision and you're not distracted by focal lengths you don't have? I would say that I know the focal range I'm going to want to shoot, especially if I'm shooting in New York City in a snowstorm. There's sort of a sweet spot that I've traditionally gravitated towards. What is that sweet spot? So in the past, I only ever shot with the 16 to 35 lens, and I would shoot at 18 millimeters usually. Like I would always end up there, no matter what I did. When I shoot with the 24 to 70, I'm always shooting at 24, always. So usually it depends on the lens that I have. So if it's a 16 to 35, I'm always at 18. If it's the 24 to 70, I'm always at 24. I mean, that's what I'm comfortable with, and that's kind of how I see. I mean, that, that's why for me that setup works so well. I want to talk a little bit about social media. You know, you really, I think it's fair to say you got your start because of social media. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how does one, you know, kind of become you? What, what is, if, if you were talking to a photographer today who was trying to really uh, make the most of social media, what advice would you give them? Well, I think the social media landscape of today is very different from when I started, which seems silly to say, because I've, I only really started posting my work online like six years ago. <laughs> so it's not an incredibly long period of time that I've been doing it, but I would say that today it's very different. Um, I would say that things have gotten even more social um, on social media and that if you're starting out today, there's, there's a lot of really good platforms, but I would say that Instagram is one of the best currently and that's primarily because of the community aspect. There's so many different collectives and communities on Instagram that if you just get involved with people, and again, you're, you're being social on social media, um, teaming up with people and collaborating really is one of the best ways to not only grow your following, but kind of really grow creatively, I would say. I think there's a big movement currently towards collaboration, whereas when I first started out back in my day, um, <laughs> I would say that it was a little bit more, everyone was a lot more for themselves mm -hmm. and there was less of a focus on collaborating and actively seeking out other photographers and doing projects together. Um, so I think the landscape is a lot more favorable today um, and it's just a matter of kind of putting your work out there 
and sort of figuring out, depending on the platform that you're on, what is the thing that's going on currently? Like what's really hot right now? Like right now on Instagram, it's all about collectives and people teaming up and forming their own little groups and sort of propping each other up, you know, and trying to figure out like, is there, is there something like that in my area? Can I make something like that happen? Maybe I can reach out to other people who are in the same boat as I am. So maybe other people with the same kind of follower accounts and we can all help each other out. And I think it's a great time to sort of be on social as an artist. A lot of your posts are very, very introspective. You know, it's not just the photograph. It's a lot about what you were feeling when you took the photograph and what you're feeling now that you're thinking back to when you took the photograph and all of this. And I think for a lot of less open-minded photographers, Instagram was panned as just being a place where people blasted out mediocre pictures. But it's really changed. And what you're putting out there from the Arctic trip really speaks to that. You know, with that kind of, it's not just here's a picture, do you like it? It's here's a picture, this is what I was doing, this is what it meant to me, and really creating that feeling that's much more than just the, the picture that people are going to scroll through very quickly and making them pause and, and think about something differently. Is that a, a new trend, do you think, or has that always been there? I mean, I've always written with my photography. The Arctic trip was obviously extremely transformative for me on so many different levels. And I think for everyone who traveled in that group, definitely um, it's changed our lives on a lot of different levels. But um, for me, it was when I came back from that trip and I realized, you know, I can't just share these photos. I can't just blast it out and be like, look at these great mountains. Look at this amazing polar bear. Like, there's so much more to each of those experiences. You know, there's so many more things that I went through in my, my head when I was looking at those things that was going on in the environment. And I think um, for me, it's been really important to, to put those photos in a context so people can understand that a little bit better. That it's not just I'm collecting this experience of this visual scene and sharing it with you, but there were so many other things happening. Before we started recording, um, we were talking a little bit about social media and used a phrase that really resonated with me, which is the, it's social, it's not broadcasting. Describe a little, a little bit about what you mean by that. I mean, I think, I think that people forget that social media is, I mean, it has the word social in the term. And intrinsically, the meaning behind it is to be social. It's, it's not just a one-way thing. Social media involves more than one party. And I think that it's very easy for people to get wrapped up in their careers and the busyness of life. I mean, let's face it, all of our lives are so busy, no matter what we're doing, that we kind of forget at times that when we're sharing our work online, there's other people who are looking at it and something resonates for them. They leave a comment, you know, they're touched by something and they're really invested in following your story, your career, your work, whatever it is that, whatever it is that they're drawn to about you. And I think it's really important to remember that because, I mean, I like to think of it in a very, 
in a very empathy motivated way that like if I go on somebody's photo on Instagram and they've written out this amazing caption and I'm really touched by it and I say oh my goodness you know I felt the same way and this is incredible I wish I had that experience it always means so much when somebody comments back and those are the people that you remember and I like to think of that a lot when I'm thinking about interacting with people I'm not always able to as of late because like I have a lot of things going on, but I do try to take the time to respond to some people. And I think it's important to remember that social media is social and that, you know, just taking that little bit of time and responding to somebody who's taken the time to care about what you're doing just means so much to both parties. You can find links to Vivian's Instagram account and her Facebook page in the show notes at alphauniverse.com. Vivian will be back in a few minutes with a do this now tip for beginning photographers that will help you develop your craft. Two aspects of mirrorless systems that attract a lot of photographers are their smaller size and lighter weight compared to a DSLR. Those advantages are nice to have, but as Sony's Mark Weir explains in our Tech Talk segment, the system has other lesser appreciated benefits. I'm here today with Mark Weir at Sony's San Diego headquarters. Mark, thanks very much for joining us. Happy to be here, Chris. I wanted to talk to you today about uh, some of the advantages of, of mirrorless systems beyond the discussion of, of size and weight. Can you speak to that? Sure. Again, the perception of mirrorless cameras has often been an advantage in smaller size and lower weight and how much easier it is to carry them and you know, a, a system of lenses and accessories uh, due to the way they're made. But realistically, we understand that that's a, uh, a nice-to-have advantage, but it really, uh, the cameras have to deliver higher performance and they have to provide photographers and videographers uh, with capabilities that they wouldn't otherwise be able to have if they're really to um, have the value that's necessary. So uh, we look at the structure of SLRs and it's really been rather similar for quite a while now. Uh, whether from the film era or for digital SLRs. And SLRs in general, uh, optical viewfinder through the lens viewing, is something that we all know developed 50, 60 years ago as an outgrowth of cameras that existed at the time, which ironically are really designed much more like mirrorless cameras today. Mirrorless cameras offer a very short distance from the lens mount to the focal plane. They're very compact and if you look at rangefinder cameras from the 40s and 50s, the appearance is really quite similar. Major difference, though, is that rangefinder cameras will offer an optical viewfinder that is not providing a preview of the scene through the lens. And SLRs were created in those days to overcome that shortfall. So instant return reflex mirrors and pentaprism or pentamirror optical eye-level viewfinders were created so the photographer could see the scene through the shooting lens itself. That, of course, increased the size of the camera due to the space needed for the mechanism of the mirror, and it also moved the lens mount away from the focal plane to allow for the mechanism of the instant return mirror. In so doing, uh, lens design became quite a bit different from the lenses that had existed before in rangefinder-style cameras, 
um, because you had to allow for the uh, lens to be a further distance from the focal plane. The design and the optical formula of the lens changed. And also we had uh, the appearance of instant return irises to allow a bright uh, viewfinder image to be created in the uh, eye level viewfinder because the you know the shooting iris needed to be wide open to provide a bright view through the uh, pentaprism. In mirrorless cameras we can eliminate the instant return mirror, we can eliminate the pentamirror or pentaprism uh, eye level finder and simply rely on the signal from the image sensor to create the preview of the scene in a miniature LCD or OLED device eye-level finder. And in so doing, we create a camera that not only is smaller and lighter, but is imbued with capabilities that would be very difficult, if not impossible, to realize uh, with an SLR design. Let's talk about lens design in particular and the advantages of lens design with a mirrorless system. Well, when we can move the lens mount very close to the focal plane, uh, it's about 18 millimeters uh, in our E-mount system, we have the advantage of not only compact size and weight, but the design of the lens can become a little bit different in terms of what it can do in terms of how the optical formula is arranged because we don't have to allow an extra inch or so of space between the mount and the focal plane uh, for the instant return mirror mechanism uh, to be there. Optical formula can be simplified. We're all aware of some extraordinarily compact and yet fast lenses that have been created for short flangeback cameras as it's known over the years. Certainly classic rangefinder lenses are excellent examples. Typically 50 millimeter F1.4s can be very, very small. But we also have some other advantages in terms of um, how the camera can behave. Not only in terms of shooting still images at high speeds, but also in terms of capturing video that would be very difficult uh, with any other design. Indeed, if you look at the design of lenses for most mirrorless cameras, the lens itself becomes an integral part of the focusing system, and this allows for capture of uh, video that would be difficult, if not impossible, with uh, autofocus when using an SLR design. Do you have a question about Sony mirrorless cameras and lenses? Go to the Alpha Universe Facebook page to send your questions our way. You can find a link in the podcast show notes at alphauniverse.com. Vivienne Goussois is a self-taught photographer who didn't grow up with a camera. She's learned her craft by thoughtful trial and error. That's given her a unique perspective on how to refine photography skills. In our Do This Now segment, Vivienne has a couple of suggestions to help new photographers conquer the learning curve. Vivian, if I was going to ask you one piece of advice, one tip that you could give to a young photographer today that would make an immediate difference to them, what would it be? I think for anybody who's starting out in photography, one of the things that is so intimidating, and it was intimidating for me, is to, to try to shoot in manual mode. Shooting in manual mode really allows you to understand how different functions work in the camera. And understanding how those functions work is really integral to understanding principles of light, 
which is essentially what you're chasing the whole time as a photographer. You're constantly working with light and trying to figure out how different things affect it and how you can sort of create things with it or take away things with it. So I think my biggest piece of advice is to not be afraid of manual mode. And something that I did when I finally got a camera that had manual mode <laughs> was I put the camera in manual mode and I didn't have an expectation that the first set of photos that I was taking were going to be masterpieces. I think that's super important. You know, know that if you're going into manual, you're just learning. They're not going to be these unbelievable works of art yet. And just be okay with that. And just to be able to play with the different functions and see what each one of them actually do to the scene that you're trying to capture is very, very helpful in terms of learning how the camera works and kind of learning how each thing affects light. And I think that to me is one of the gems of Sony cameras, to be able to use the electronic viewfinder where you can see everything that's being altered on that electronic viewfinder is so helpful when you're just starting out because you're able to actually see like, oh my goodness, when I change the shutter speed this way, right? oh, all of a sudden I can capture this person moving in a certain way. And I wasn't able to do that when it was lower or whatever the case may be, whatever it is that you're, you're changing. And I think that's very valuable when you're first starting. And it's also kind of the way that I taught myself how to edit as well with Lightroom. And I, I see a lot of correlations. Essentially, how I learned how to edit was I would apply a regular Lightroom preset and I would look at everything that changed on the side panel and all of the sliders, and I would go, wow, that's really interesting. So when I apply this preset, the highlight slider goes this way. I wonder what that means. So like, what happens if I move it to the other end? Oh, that must, that must be what highlights are doing. Okay, this is what shadows are doing. So essentially, just kind of giving yourself the creativity to play. I think people get scared because, you know, you're, you're, you have this piece of gear that you've invested a lot of money in or this piece of software and people get really scared to play with it. But being able to play with it and experiment is how you learn and how you grow. And I think it's a great way to learn whatever you're trying to learn. Thanks very much. And thanks very much for being our guest today on the Alpha Universe podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Alpha Universe podcast. Join me next time when my guest will be social photographer Dave Krugman. You can find the show notes for this episode at alphauniverse.com. Subscribe to the Alpha Universe podcast at iTunes or in the podcast app on your smartphone or tablet.